This episode of the Broadband Bunch is sponsored by ETI Software and Vetro FiberMap. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Broadband Bunch. I'm Joe Coldabella and we are at Fiber Connect 2023 in Orlando, Florida. Joining me is Gary Bolton, President and CEO of the Fiber Broadband Association. Gary, welcome back to the Broadband Bunch. Joe, just great to be here. I'm so glad that you're down here in beautiful Orlando and with uh, 4,000 of your closest friends. <laughs> yeah, no, this is an absolutely phenomenal event. We truly appreciate you guys letting us come here, get so many great stories. It's it's really um, it's a really an exciting time. Oh, it's amazing. Just the energy is you know, I have a long, long, you know, four decade career, and this has probably been the most fun, you know, fun part of my entire career. I mean, just the energy and the opportunity that we have as an industry right now is just historic. Well, you know, the event itself is is amazing. I think that uh, JJ and um, Richard Williams and his, his team uh, compliment you and your folks, and you guys do a tremendous job. Well, JJ, you know, Joseph Jones, the president of OnTrack, he's our board chairman this year. And anybody who knows JJ, he's been a heavy lifter for two decades at the association. And he's just a phenomenal chair, just a passionate guy and just a great guy to learn from. Yeah, awesome. And it's one of those things where I don't know if you know this, but um, the Fiber Broadband Association was the first preview show that we ever did um, in 2020. So you took over in late 2020. Nothing big was going on at that time, right? In terms of just like the world was just humming along. <laughs> yeah, I was sitting home doing my work from home with COVID with everybody else. And uh, yeah, we had a tough run. You know, we had um, moved, you know, to a association model and um, we had a, a new CEO at that time. And anyway, it got to the point where when all the revenue was for the association, you know, we basically had 30% was membership and, you know, 70% was the conference. And when you don't have a conference or try to go to virtual, you know, basically all the revenue goes to near zero and, you know, just the engagement, it was just a tough time. And, you know, so that's where I was on the board and I was very vocal about what we should do. And then the board kind of said, well, put up or shut up. So um, they handed me the reins and said, you know, this thing is um, needs a big turnaround. So, so well, apparently you're cooking with gasoline because in that time you, you've grown um, the association by over 100%. It must be super gratifying. Yeah, it's been fantastic. You know, first and foremost was to kind of get the model right and then to, um, you know, basically rebuild the team. So I hired all new staff and, um you know, my philosophy is on delivering work product. And so, you know, I don't, I tell my staff, I don't want them to ever go and ask people to join. I want them to demonstrate with engagement and work product, you know, being able to do best practice and be able to do the right advocacy and be able to deliver. And then people will come flocking. And we've been fortunate, you know, we've um, added 46 net new members this, this year. Um, we've, you know, as you said, we've over doubled the size of the association on companies that have joined. And, you know, we have all the, you know, 52% are service providers. So we have all the tier ones and tier twos and, um, and some amazing uh, rural operators and municipalities, rural electric co-ops. And we've added 24 tribes um, this year. So we have a new uh, uh, committee that's focused on tribal broadband where we really want 
to help the industry understand what the tribal broadband needs are. And we really need tribal engagement to be able to do that. And so um, we've had Robert Griffin um, of Choctaw Nation and uh, Sachin Gupta from CenturyNet that have been able to come together as our co-chairs. And that's been phenomenal. And then just on revenue, you know, we've been able to take, you know, we were kind of in the dirt and we've been able to basically um, over double our revenue every year for the last three years um, because we've been able to really focus on creating new revenue streams. And so that we're, you know, members don't like paying dues. What they want to do is they want to pay for return on investment. Sure. And so providing opportunities to, you know, get membership value and then be able to drive revenue. So you're not leaning on membership. And then we're not so dependent on the conference, even though the conference says, you know, we, the first conference we had out of COVID, we set a record. So prior to that, the largest conference we ever had was 1,700 people coming right out of COVID. We had 2,000. We had to do a lot of modeling on uh, looking at, you know, how herd immunity and things like that and trying to thread the needle and when sure, we could sure. be able to sneak a conference in. And it was really kind of the first conference people came to, big conference after COVID, which was risky for people. But, you know, we ended up with 2,000. And last year we had another record with 3,000 and this year at 4,000. So, you know, it's not about, we can grow fast, but we don't want to do that. We want to grow a measured growth because it's really about the quality of experience. And we've really focused hard this year um, on really elevating the experience. So we doubled our budget on AV. So when you go into the general sessions, you see the epic um, LED screens and the, you know, all the AV systems. And, you know, we have the live music that between sessions and then the food and um, beverage, you know, and um, just the overall impact. We also added a C-suite form, try to make this a real deal zone. And so that to make this um, a comfortable event for sure. CEOs of, of operators and companies coming together. And we had 125 C-suite members at our C-suite forum yesterday. And um, so just trying to continue to make the quality of experience. You know, our show, exhibit show was amazing. Uh, Phenomenal. Yeah. And so just providing, you know, you walk in and just the branding from the Fiber Broadband Association, our position, but also make that experience amazing for every single exhibitor and sponsor. And as a result, um, you know, we'll be sold out for 2024 um, by tomorrow, I think. So, <laughs> Well, no, it's funny because I was talking to um, Evan, who's going to be chair next year. And I said, you guys are going to need a bigger boat because it's one of those things where you're just growing and growing, It's which is just so awesome. Well, that is kind of a challenge because this year we had to move our conference from our regular date of June um, we had, had it all booked here at, in Orlando, but we realized we, we were too big for, you know, we didn't have the whole hotel. And so the only time we could get the entire hotel, um, the, you know, Gaylord um, whole resort property here was this date here in end of August. And so, and we, so we sold out the hotel um, two months ago. We sold out another Marriott. Um, and then we are, you know, now where people are spread across Orlando to get here. So, we have outgrown Orlando, and so we'll be back in Nashville, which is the largest Gaylord property. But um, so it's getting challenging, you know, to make sure that we have because we don't want people, you know, have an Uber all over town to get sure. here. We want them, you know, have convenient rooms and just again quality of experience. You know, I I really have to echo that because uh, you know just hanging out, we went to a, a, a you know I've I've gone to, to dinner with a few folks. The food has been absolutely phenomenal. The service here is top notch. So it's one of those things where it's a, it's a it's a great run run event. 
Well, you know, we've had a great partnership with the Gaylord and just trying to elevate that experience. Um, you know, again, we want this to be not just another trade show because, you know, there's a, uh, I don't know how many conferences <laughs> right. I've been to in the last several weeks, but um, we want this to really set the mark as far as an experience. And so the quality of our speakers, the quality of the experience, you know, so it's not only where we have good, comfortable conference rooms, but great AV, great sound systems, great food, and just great networking opportunities so that we can really connect people. And And, and I saw that, you know, I had dinner with um, the, the chief operating officer of one of the larger companies, and he was in the C-suite forum, and he heard about a new technology during that discussion. And, you know, by dinner time, they already had a trial set up for- Oh, wow. And so that's what I love seeing is the fact that a CEO of- uh, you know, a small innovative um, supplier can come in and and meet up with the CEO of um, a large operator and have a trial within hours of meeting them. No, and I love that. That's one of the great things about conferences is that either it's you you see someone in the hall or you you go on, on the expo floor and all of a sudden something clicks for somebody and then it opens up a whole a bunch of doors, which is just phenomenal. Well, the other thing, I just came out of our public policy um, committee meeting so, you know, we do, we have 15 different committees, um, which are, you know, really trying to drive advocacy or um, best practices and, and so forth. And so we, the, it was um, standing room only. So that was just great to see that um, the people, you know, we have to meet on Zoom. And so now when we can be here in person, it was great to see and just all the great ideas of what we need to do to really drive our advocacy. You know, I was talking to Kevin Morgan yesterday, and one of the things that he said that I thought was just like kind of blew my mind away was was permitting, right? And, and it's one of those things where uh, when I, you know, I've only been in the industry a short time, but in, in terms of just like as all this money was getting rolled out, if you said to me a, a few years ago that, that permitting was going to be a major issue, I would have been like, are you crazy? But it's, it's massive. It's, it's amazing. Yeah, so we you know we had Eric Badel um, here. He was he's the, the czar of permitting, the federal permitting. So he's the chair of all the permitting agencies for the federal government, and so he spoke in a number of different places. And you know, again, it's it's a huge issue because when you look at, I don't know if you saw my remarks yesterday, but one of my top five initiatives is acceleration of deployment. That's speed is our friend, and we we anything that's going to slow down deployment is going to drive up costs, drive up. In, inefficiencies and we can't afford that. So we, you know, we've been working on the Hill, the energy, um, the House Energy and Commerce Committee has about 28 bills that we've been working on. Wow. And really want us to streamline permitting and locates and just be able to have, you know, speed deployment. No, because you're right. You know, there's the Parkinson's law where it's like, you'll you'll basically, in terms of the, however long it is, that's how, how long it'll take you to do. So if you say, hey, listen, we need to do it in three years, you'll do it in three years. If you say we need to do it in 10 years, you'll do it in 10 years. So I think that's really important. And I actually think that the fact that the states had to develop um, broadband plans, five-year plans. Usually I'm not a fan of, of bureaucracy. I'm usually not a fan of layering, but I think that was a phenomenal idea. Well, I mean, we've been really impressed with NTI and the leadership at NTI. And, you know, we worked really hard to get our broadband infrastructure playbook out right after um, Biden signed the infrastructure bill into law so that, you know, we can get the states up and going. So by the time NTI's notice of funding opportunity came out uh, later in May, the following year, you know, the states were already ready to go. But just the, um, you know, the, these things are always hard to get right. 
and NTI has got it largely right, and they are very good listeners on all the things that aren't quite right. And so, um, you know, and we have a lot of the NTI leadership here at the event. So tomorrow morning at our state broadband summit, it'll be kicked off with um, NTI and they're, you know, just some exciting stuff that's just coming out. Yeah, no, it's it's great in terms of just um, one of the great things I think about this 50 state broadband offices is the is the almost the idea is that, hey, listen, now we've got 50 sort of experiments going on. And so what I hope is that that there's a lot of collaboration sort of down the line. So if someone does something great in Michigan, then they can pick it up in Arizona or Florida or wherever. Um, that's my hope. Uh, you know, it's, it's, uh, I'm really optimistic. Well, that's definitely happening. It's actually 56 because it's all the state and territories. And, you know, so we have some states like um, Louisiana, they're out front. And uh, so um, also Vermont's out front. And so I've been you know, with, that was at a, Broadband Leadership Summit um, in Tahoe a couple weeks ago with a lot of the state broadband directors. I've been in a number of those type of sessions, um, you know, for the past year. And those, all the state broadband offices are sharing best practices. We're doing our best to be able to identify those state, you know, the best practices with our, you know, both the workforce development playbook, our guidebook, and our broadband infrastructure playbook, where we identify, you know, when we see a best practice in a state, we want to make sure that every state knows about it. That's great because it's one of those things where that's the great thing about this industry. In a lot of ways, there's there's obviously competition, but there's also an there's a, a lot of collaboration as well. Absolutely, and that's one of the things that we're really trying to hap make happen at this conference and in our association is, you know, everybody, every member of our association is a competitor, and so you know whether they're ISP competitors or they're you know supplier competitors. But it's all, we're all came, coming together for the common good. And, you know, we're trying, this is a big pie and we're growing this pie. And that's the, what this conference is about is how do we collaborate to really, you know, this is bigger than any company, any of us, right? This is, I think um, someone put it um, great this morning and says that we're the ancestors of the future. And so, like that. and so when you think about it in that context, it's not about, you know, kind of the, the goals or the needs of any individual company, but it's really about collectively, how do we be able to have generational impact? You know, it's so true. It's, it's ironic. So after Mountain Connect, I actually went up to South Dakota and I went and saw the um, Mount Rushmore and I was just walking around and there was a, an article and it was a gentleman. It was just like, um, uh, we're just working on faces. And it's kind of funny in the sense that, you know, we're all doing just, you know, what we're doing to get to get what done, but ultimately at the end of the day, in ten or fifteen years from now, we can look back and say, "Hey, listen, we did some good." Well, I don't even think it's ten or fifteen years. I think for you know decades and decades. I mean, we look back to nineteen, you know, the nineteen thirties. On, can you imagine if FDR didn't be able to set you know the path to have every community to have electricity and clean water, right? And the you know, I think JJ, if anybody. Uh, who saw um, Joseph Jones's presentation this morning? It was in truly inspiring. Where he talked about, um, you know, starting with electricity and then moving to transportation and the moonshot and to you know the opportunity we have today. So it's really kind of on that 
JFK, you know, man on the moon, moonshot sure. kind no, of level. And I, I really think it is the it is the, the electrification of America 2.0. Um, and it's funny, I, I spoke with some folks yesterday from Arkansas, and it took them, you know, decades to get it done and for their area, and they're trying to do it in four years. So, I mean, we definitely um, have our, our, our foot on the, the gas pedal. Well, you know, so today, you know, we had five operator light talks over the last couple of days, and which were all phenomenal. You know, the president of AT&T, we had um, the CEO of Google um, Fiber, but uh, Jim Ingram from EPB, you know, his talk about quantum networking. When you, not crazy. When you think about, you know, how is it that Chattanooga, this little tiny town in the hills of t- um, East Tennessee, can be able to be you know, a world, uh, I mean, they're relevant. They were, um, you know, set the world mark as the first gigabit city over a decade ago. And then they're the first 10 gig city. And then the first 25 gig city now have launched the first commercial quantum network. So how is that possible? Well, when you put the infrastructure in, it's easy, right? Because upgrading from one gig to 10 gig to 25 gig is just changing out the endpoints. Right. And once you have that fiber, then all of a sudden you can start enabling all these amazing things. And the the incredible thing about Chattanooga, at least from my point of view, is that it's a it's a it's not private; it's government. So it's just like you know, you just get blown away. You you would think that oh, listen, all the advancement needs to come from from uh, you know private, but they're cooking, they're moving. F- it's incredible what they're doing. Well, what is super great about that is not only do they have seventy percent market share. But the and the, that fiber deployment created 9,500 um, direct jobs, but it also delivered 2.7 billion dollars of economic impact. And even better yet is it's the revenue from broadband is subsidizing electric um, business so that they don't have to have rate increases. It's amazing, and uh, you know one of my favorite stories about um, Chattanooga is that a company from Miami, a shipping company. Moved part of their their um, their operations to Chattanooga, so it's like <laughs> you just like laugh because it's like you're landlocked, but it's no, it's 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 they just need the speed, and so I it's it's a it's just a great ph- phenomenal story all around. Well, what my favorite part is if it can happen in Chattanooga, it can happen anywhere. So it's really about you know having the fourth site and the you know taking the initiative to make sure that your community is connected with fiber and then great things will happen. You know, and that's a phenomenal point because it's a true North Star. It's like, oh, we can't do it. We can't do it. No, they did it. If they can do it, you can do it. Oh, absolutely. And this quantum networking is phenomenal. What the potential, you know, with um, cloud-based quantum computing, quantum sensors, um, you know, secure, think about how difficult it is to have secure communications when we can have this totally encrypted, ultra secure, you know, quantum um, secure communications, it is really going to protect our nation's network. Yeah, no, it, it's incredible at the, at the rate of speed we are moving at. And it's one of those things as well where it's so subtle, right? It's like these little incremental changes yeah. where you're all of a sudden you're like, how did that happen? Well, it's because of the back of the house, which is broadband, which is sort of what drives everything, but it's sort of, um, you know, I, I it's so, sort of behind the scenes. I would love it if, if there was, a, you know, an opportunity. Maybe it's one of those things where we bring in folks that are, um, you know, like the John Deere's, the Metas, all those folks in, in, in that are front and center to bring them in and say, hey, listen, this is all happening because of broadband. So 
you know, pay attention. Well, my one of my favorite sayings is change appears incremental until it's too late. <laughs> I love it. Yeah. I'm going to steal that. Um, but you know, this conference has been amazing just in terms of talking to folks in the, in, in the, in the halls, interviewing folks. Um, one of the areas I would love to just touch on briefly is the women in fiber. We just actually interviewed, um, someone who went to the luncheon today. Um, I've spoken with, with, um, Holly and Alexa. They're so awesome. Um, their event today, uh, it seems like you could have scalped the tickets, right? There was, um, they they had 300 people and it was sold out and, and apparently it was like um, the must place to be, the must place ticket. Great stuff. You know, I, I always feel a little weird because they always invite me to come and to, you know, kick off the meeting and so forth. So being the the, the guy in the room of 300 women, um, but it's just phenomenal. Um, the momentum, so this committee is very active. They have a big steering committee and a lot of subcommittees. And one of the key things they've been working on is mentorship. And so yesterday they brought a, um, a number of at-risk youths from Tech Savvy that come, came in and be able to, and these are um, young girls that are mentoring other girls on being able to get more Tech Savvy. And so they got to walk the trade show floor and see all the technology and so forth. So just you know, creating men- mentorships, you know, making sure that we can um, encourage young women to um, become more not only tech savvy, but to be more confident and to really come into our industry and to be um, feel not only welcome but um, be able to you know fulfill their potential. And so um, I'm really excited about you know our women in fiber efforts. And you know they do a spotlight on a woman in fiber leader. You know at all levels of the um, organization every month. And it's just it's just a great group of um, ladies. Yeah, no, it really is, and it's uh, interesting because I I did see see the the young ladies walking around as well, and it was great because it, you know it, it also sort of like hopefully it opens their eyes to say, hey, listen, there's different way. There's a whole world out there. You know, when you're super young and you live in your neighborhood, it's just your neighborhood. But it's like, if you get brought to an event like this, it's like, wow, I can go and do this. I can do that. I've got a, an opportunity. All I need to do is talk to the right people. You know, I'm super excited to see what they do in the future. Cause I think it's, um, it's an organization, you know, just talking to the women that I've spoken with, um, really forward thinking. You know, so I was on the board for Teach for America for about five or six years, and I had gone to a Title IX school, and the um, the guidance counselor there had a lawnmower, and they had a little patch of grass out by the school, and he would teach these young boys how to mow the lawn, because one day they will have a lawn. And it's just those little things to set, uh, plant a seed, I guess, in their, their mind that you know, they're not going to grow up in subsidized living, but they're going to have their own home. They're going to be mowing their own lawn. So just, you know, that's, so I think it's really important to, you know, make sure that um, young people can see what is available to them and what they can really aspire to. Well, that's a perfect segue to my, to my next sort of area I'd like to touch on, which is the workforce. Uh, you guys are doing a phenomenal job, Deborah Kish. Um, so, how, how do you, how is it sort of rolling out in terms of, of workforce? Are, are we, getting a hold of it or is it going to those things where it's going to be a, sort of a, a, a tough sort of sled because it's, it's tough all over. Well, yeah. So, you know, we had, um, I guess when I came on, we started realizing, okay, if we're going to be able to really get everybody connected with fiber, we need to have the workforce. That's going to be the long pole. And so we, you know, spent a year putting together the OptiPath, optic path, um, fiber optic technician training. And we've got, you know, department of labor accreditation and started rolling that out. And so, 
That's been rolled out to about 68 community colleges and training institutes across the nation. But our goal is to get it into every state, all 56 states and territories. And so we brought on Todd Jackson. He was um, a market president for Lit, um, Lit Market, Lit Communities. And so he's come on on workforce development to team up with Debbie. And so we're working on a model right now that we're um, you know, working with about five states right now to do a statewide program. And so that would be licensed to the course to all the community colleges in that state and be able to you know, do the program statewide working with the um, state broadband office because um, workforce development is a bead eligible expense. And so, um, you know, that's the challenge is, you know, how do we get this to every community college across all 56 states and territories and do this in a very f- quick fashion? You know, and this is the one of the great things I, I really love about the podcast is that I get to talk to folks like you or when I was at Mountain Connect, I was talking to some folks and uh, the the topic of, of um, workforce came up. And one of the guys said that this company, what they would do is they would go to the local high school team and they would talk to the coach and say, hey, listen, obviously not everyone's going to college. You know, are there some of the guys that, you know, don't really know what they're going to do? We can sort of guide them to a way to get a... To, to not only get a job out of high school, but to get a career. And I just thought that was a, a phenomenal idea. Well, we're certainly spending a lot of time looking at um, underemployed and um, areas of the population. So one area, like we've been working with a number of states, is um, people coming out of corrections. Okay. Like for an example, in Ohio, they have 16,000 people coming out of corrections every year. And so those that have the aptitude and the right profile to be able to become a um, a fiber optic technician, that's a great opportunity to Break really, the cycle. Exactly. And, um, you know, again, there's a number of um, populations that have been um, just underemployed and just try to find those populations that we can be able to, you know, put into this workforce and provide career opportunities. You know, and it's great. I love how, you know, we're, we're going after the young folks. But one of the things that when I spoke with, with Kevin yesterday, which I thought was phenomenal, I just wanted to call it out, was the senior council committee. Uh, you know, it's one of those things where obviously in the next few years, a lot of folks are going to be stepping away from the industry. And so when I heard it, I thought it was just a, a phenomenal idea. It's like one of those things where we can't have this brain drain. So I just wanted to to give you a kudos for that. It's a great idea. Yeah. So, I mean, the whole concept behind that is when I came in, I, um, so as people roll off our board, like, you know, people like Mike Hill, who was chairman for three times and Kevin Morgan and, and, you know, when JJ rolls off and so forth, it's to be able to have access to these amazing leaders that have some historical context, you know, of the association and, and the industry and to not let them kind of just disappear on us. And so um, they serve three years after they've um, rolled off the board. And it's just, for me, just uh, a great place where I can, when there's big hairy issues that I want to take and I can have them vet it. Um, also, they do, um, when we look at nominations for our board elections. And, you know, so it's a great opportunity to be able to leverage this um, folks of leaders that have a lot of history with the association. And then and then I have access to them. So that's yeah. my selfish motivation to keep <laughs> access. But it's also, you know, it's just super, um, super strong bench strength. It's one of those things where when you have that bench strength and you can sort of like, hey, you know, call in the lefty, it's, it, it's all, it always helps. Fantastic. You know, and our board elections, you know, the quality of the candidates, I mean, we're you know, so we do a premier member meeting. We did one um, down in uh, Florida um, last December. We're going to be in Palm Springs this uh, December. And just, you know, really quality meeting. And then we have um, 
a really good process that we put in place to be able to, you know, continue to have great board members. So um, if we could switch channels a little bit, I would love it if we could talk about the uh, your tagline or the original tagline was, if it's not fiber, it's not broadband. And I have to say, uh, so I'm a marketing and advertising guy for 20 years. That's a, it's a phenomenal, phenomenal job by you in terms of just setting the stage in terms of basically you're selling the category. And I think that it was it really set the table for, for setting forth the funding. Um, so, you know, what was the inspiration behind that? I would love to know. Yeah. So we have um, a, a government officials roundtable. So it's about 150 government, you know, public officials, elected officials from about 45 states right now. And so one of the first um, roundtable discussions, you know, the public officials are they're saying, you know, hey, I go to my um, town council or city council meeting and I'm trying to explain we need fiber. And they're like, well, why do we need fiber? We're going to have 5G. And, and it's just very difficult for them to get in there and try to explain the difference between 25.3 and 100 sure. by 20 and all this stuff. And so I came away with this saying, for a public official, this is too complex. Let's just make it super simple and say, if it's not fiber... It's not broadband. Simple, you know, and, you know, we, so that was a very powerful message and really kind of, you know, people were kind of accusing me of being a little bit of aggressive, but, you know, that is really the message, you know, because what we are talking about is to have digital equity. We want to make sure that every person's connected and has the same opportunity. And if you give someone a lesser service that's not going to be able to evolve as, you know, we go from gigabits to 10 gigabits to terabits, and be able to do the low latency and do all the things that we can get to quantum networks and so forth, you know, you're doing people a disservice. So if, they, if they're not fiber, they're not getting the service they need. Well, and it's interesting too, just as someone who is was new to the industry in terms of just all the different sort of players trying to sort of kind of plant their flag, but you sort of like own the field. So it's one of those things where, and, and you know, just from a personal point of view, I think that it was the the right thing to do because ultimately, you know, you want to make sure that everyone gets served as soon as possible. And sometimes it's going to take a little bit longer, but ultimately it's like, you've got to think future proof. You got to think that, Hey, listen, we need to be future ready. And unfortunately, at least right now, a lot of the technologies say they can do it, but really only one can get there. Yeah. And so fortunately that fight is over. So when the NTI bead NOFO came out um, last year and, and basically said these projects have to be fiber, um, that really set the tone. And then as we've seen that, you know, it's after the pandemic and, you know, you're not, I think um, uh, the Denny Jane from the CEO of Google Fiber says it's great that we don't have to defend gigabit anymore, right? So everybody gets it. And so now we've kind of moved on before, you know, that people get it and know that it has to be fiber. And so what we really have evolved to is now, you know, once you have fiber, what are you able to enable? And so the new tagline we've gone to is um, when fiber leads, the future follows. And that, it, to me, just is, is so accurately encapsulates what we're trying to do is we're trying to enable the metaverse. We're trying to enable quantum network. We're trying to enable uh, artificial intelligence and all these things that are going to be coming that you know, all this innovation we can't even imagine right now. And so if once you get fiber in, all this innovation then can be able to enable this amazing future. Well, it, it is incredible um, when, so I'm a big fan of, of VR. I think that, 
I think the adoption is going to take some time because it's one of those things, but it, it, it is a sort of a miraculous kind of thing is when you have someone put on an Oculus or, or a VR set and they, it's, it's almost like the light switch goes on. Oh, now I get it. But it's one of those things where if you go into a, a room, even if people that are, that are, that are technology forward and ask them about VR, they're, they're still not, they haven't experienced it yet. So it's definitely one of those things where I, I really like how you've sort of shifted and say, Hey, listen, it's like, technology is coming and we've got to be ready for it. Well, I mean, when you start thinking like metaverse, people start rolling their eyes because they're thinking of gaming, right? And so if you're not a gamer, you probably don't, it's not, doesn't resonate with you, but you really have to understand the, you know, so at the White House, they had some great um, training opportunities using VR. So they were, one of the demonstrations they're showing is on um, painting, using a spray painting like you'd paint a car. Right. And they could do that all virtually using VR. And so you can be able to do great, you know, I'm an educator, I teach at the university. So being in just trying to do this remote learning and things that we had to do during COVID is very difficult. But if you can all of a sudden have an immersive experience, um, also when you think about medical and imaging and things like that. So, you know, once we get beyond just gaming, you know, the gaming is what drives revenue. And that's it's the gateway. It's the gateway into, into the, into the VR. Cause it's one of, yeah. I, I agree with you hundred percent where it's, we've, we, I actually interviewed someone last year. It was a medical company that uses augmented reality for someone in Kansas city to speak with somebody in a rural area. And they used, uh, she was a, a, a cancer specialist and obviously a cancer specialist can't go out into the to rural areas. It's just like, it, uh, it just doesn't make sense in terms of, of cost, in terms of travel. And so she was able to um, connect with patients and discuss their, their treatments and, and talk about their, their diagnosis and stuff like that, exactly, where people don't see that. And it's one of those things where I think that one of the things that the industry needs to do is say, hey, listen, there's some cool things that we don't even know that are coming down that we definitely need to prepare for. Well, exactly. As I said, you know, change appears incremental <laughs> until it's too late. So. Um, but a couple other things, and and then really appreciate your time. Uh, phenomenal visit. Um, so you say the fight is over, but let me tell you, folks. I, so I was at Mountain Connect, and I was I was just in a room full of um, about thirty folks or so, and the discussion of fiber versus um, wireless versus um, Leos came up. And Gary, you happen to be in the room, and it was a spirited discussion. And and it's one of those things where you know, obviously, you, you can be in front of these big rooms, but you go everywhere. <laughs> Yeah, well, my blood gets up a little bit when you start bringing up um, low Earth orbit satellite, you know, because we had a big fight in uh, Ardoff because, um, you know, the FCC had awarded Starlink, you know, Elon Musk, the richest guy in the world, um, $885 million, almost a billion dollars to do Ardoff with LEO satellites. And the technology, so I'm a technologist, right? I grew up engineering and at companies that created great innovation. But it's about people. And so when you go and say, okay, I can connect these people with Leo satellites like they did in Ardoff, and then you start digitally redlining. You're saying, okay, all these people are connected, so they're good. And so meanwhile, as the infrastructure money comes out and you can be able to connect everybody with fiber, those people that were going to be relegated to Leo satellites were off the table. They were now were served, so they, didn't, they weren't eligible for this money. And so, you know, we have to be able to put the critical infrastructure that's going to serve generations to come and not be able to put up an antenna and say, okay, this person's connected, you know, check the box. This is really important. You know, think about electricity. If we hadn't pulled 
actual electricity to everybody's home, we could have dropped off a little generator or a windmill or something and said, okay, you guys are good enough because you're out in the remote area. But it's, it's, it's transforming. This has to last for generations. Yeah, my hope is is that, and, and you know, I have no idea if the Leos are going to work anyway. But I, I hope there's going to be more of an application in terms of business that um, that the satellites will be used for for planes in terms of like when fo- folks are flying through the air and then they can reach out for that way. But you're 100 percent right. It's one of those things where people really don't know what they don't know. So when all of a sudden you have somebody who has really slow internet connection and then they get something that's souped up, they're like, oh my God, this is what I've been missing. It really is one of those things where unfortunately we've got to make sure that um, people aren't shortchanged. Well, so don't get me wrong. I mean, if, if you get a Leo satellite connection, it's great until someone else adopts it. Right. Right. Cause it's a shared medium. And so, you know, you're, the more people on it, the worse it's going to be. And so that's where we model. I mean, so everything we do is with math and modeling and so the way we were con- able to convince the FCC that to basically um, reject the um, RDOF award was to be able to provide a model that you know they could, the FCC could put in their inputs and let Elon Musk would give them any inputs they want. But it just showed they didn't have the capacity. It wasn't going to be able to be sustainable. And that's what we're about is we have to have sustainable long-term solutions. So uh, speaking of long-term solutions, as I said, after Mountain Connect, I um, got into the car and I drove up to Yellowstone and did some other states or whatever. And I'm in literally in the middle of nowhere. There's me and two cows. And what do I see? I see two big spools of uh, fiber in the middle of nowhere and a, an Vantage Point car. So it's it's happening, Gary. It's getting everywhere. Well, we're, you know, by the end of the decade, we'll definitely have every American connected with fiber. So I'm incredibly excited. So um, that's my hope as well. And there's one area that scares me a little bit. And that, and, and ironically, it's, um, it's big cities where I think that, uh, and I would love to get your, your thoughts on it, because I think my big fear is, you know, one of the things that we say in the broadband bunch is that our biggest fear is that the digital divide will not shrink, but in some areas it will grow. And one of those areas is, is, you know, inner cities where unfortunately sometimes the infrastructure doesn't get there because, you know, there's not really the opportunity for, for, for cost for the companies to make sense. My question to you is, does it make sense to, to have some type of wireless there? Or is it one of those things where we need to be fiber all the way? Yeah. Well, I'll give you the quick answer is fiber all the way. But I mean, when you think about, so when you think about people think about digital divide, they often talk about rural, but urban divide is a big issue. And so, as I mentioned, I I teach uh, in the spring, I do um, data analytics. And so one of the projects that my team worked on um, a couple of years ago, the mayor had said in our community said, hey, we're a really prosperous community, but we have certain zip codes that are just being left behind. And we need to figure out why these, you know, are generational poverty. And so my team took uh, all the census data, crunched all the numbers, did you know regression analysis, and it popped out three things. If you're paying more than 40% of your income on rent, if you um, don't have access to computers and broadband, and if you don't have a four-year education, you'll be in generational poverty. Now, this was not a broadband study. This was just looking at census data, but what it really kind of crystallize the point if and you're in subsidized living what happens retail moves away to the higher um, 
income areas. And so people living in subsidized have a hard time getting to a job because they have to use some kind of public transportation or walk or somehow to get there. And so when it's too far away, they can't make the rent. They, then they can't be able to go to school and they can't. So it's just this you know, death spiral into generational poverty. And so when we connect every American with fiber, then we can provide the jobs and opportunities and education to be able to pull people out and have equality and equity and be able to really, um, I, don't, were you, I don't know at Mountain Connect, did you hear my talk where I talked about my dad and so forth? No, I didn't get a chance to hear that. Oh, Mon a Montana speech. But anyway, just how, you know, when I look back, I'm one generation away from poverty because, you know, my father was born during the Great Depression and he grew up in a, he was born in a work camp for the building of the Fort Peck Dam in Montana. And, you know, his dad was in the rodeo and, you know, the, that marriage didn't last long. And he ended up growing basically in the orphanage. And, you know, long story short, he used the GI Bill from the Korean War to get an engineering degree and ended up, you know, becoming an executive and provided a great life for me. But, you know, it's, you have to have a way out of that generational poverty. Uh, love it. That's that's awesome. Uh, before we end up, phenomenal visit, Gary. Thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate it. So um, were there any key announcements that were, were at the show that you were excited to, to sort of share with everybody? Well, we did a, a bunch of announcements for the Fiber Broadband Association. I'd say the first and foremost, most important one was um, we announced our model that we uh, completed for every single state and territory. It's on the extremely high cost threshold. And so in the bead NOFO, they basically said, okay, everything has, project has to be fiber, but each state can identify an extremely high cost threshold. So if they think it's, what number is it so expensive that you can be able to consider another technology? Okay. And so the challenge of that is how does the state set that number, right? And so there's a lot of political pressure, like some from like wireless and other industries to be able to say, put that number really low because we want to play. But if you think about, you know, how do we make sure that every American gets connected with fiber? So you need that number really high. Then you have to think about, okay, we're going to get everybody connected. So we were able to go and model, you know, since we had the FCC's um, fabric, a number of locations, we were able to know what the allocation is on each state and a number of other factors we were able to put into there. We were able to calculate the exact number that's going to maximize the fiber deployment and ensure every location is connected. And so we provided that for each state. And then the state office then can change the parameters if they have different assumptions. And so this model is really paramount to make sure that we have fiber, maximize our fiber deployment in every state. That's awesome. I love that. It's one of those things where it's, it, it, you know, the great thing about that is that it's it's like it, you want, it's just like the, the, the highway system, right? It, obviously you want everyone to, to get good roads, but sometimes it's going to be a dirt road. And so it, that's the solution. So I, I absolutely love that. Well, we want to minimize the dirt roads and make sure that everybody has, you know, the, th this is important because, you know, I like to talk about, you know, how much um, of our taxpayer dollars go to addressing the issue, you know, our societal issues um, the symptoms of those issues rather than really the root cause. And with fiber, we can really attack the root cause of these. And so it's going to save us money in the long run. And so that's why I always say that, you know, there's never a location that's too, you know, it's never too expensive to pull fiber to a location because of the incredible impact, you know, the positive impact from economic development, jobs, education, healthcare that fiber delivers. It's awesome. Um, 
You know, there was one announcement that I don't know if you, you know what happened today, but uh, you were named the 2023 Chairman's Award. So I just wanted to say that. Uh, congratulations. It's one of those things where um, everyone, I think, in the community really appreciates everything you, that you do. You're a true road warrior. You're a true advocate for broadband, and we really appreciate all that you do. Well, thanks, Joe. Thanks for having me, and um, I always look forward to our discussions. Awesome. That's going to wrap up this episode of the Broadband Bunch. Till next time, we'll see you guys later. Yeah.